0: It always fascinates me how a founder will be, you know, working in nine to five job, and suddenly they have an idea and now they're, you know, the next big med tech innovator or they're making a real estate tech company or whatever it might be. And and I've surprised myself because we're sector agnostic, right? So we work across all the different sectors. And I was like, oh, I'm only going to love the life sciences ones or the health ones. And I find myself getting really excited about a contractor procurement and like real estate tech, because they're just, they're solving problems. And the innovations that people come up with to solve these complex problems, or sometimes these simple problems, it just, it blows my mind. And I I constantly walk out of a room just being like, that one's my favorite. And then it's the next day, I'm like, oh no, I have a new favorite. So I, I love that, you know, having a job where you're able to do that every day is incredible.
1: Why is industry considered the dark side in academia? Welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. This time we rejoin a conversation with Dr. Katie Green, a funding catalyst at Thinner Labs, one of Canada's most active venture capital organizations in 2021 and 2022. But really, how does someone go from hardcore research into venture capital? I don't know, but Katie, like other graduate students who took this courageous step into venture capital, A path that just might seem increasingly viable might be able to answer this question better than I can. All right, let's just get started. But um, back on the topic. So a quick search um, can tell anyone that instead of the, like, as you said, the monolithic pursuit of roles in academia by PhD students, there's, I guess, increasing interest uh, in entering business as either a founder or in VC. Um, and there have been programs set up by different institutions, uh, such as a group called 50 Years VC, that have helped pave this path. Um, I guess, why does this undercurrent, I guess, exist and grow in the face of resistance from conventional attitudes about the path that a PhD candidate would take? You had mentioned that, for example, um, the you know, lack of certainty about gaining a PI-ship would be one of those factors. Are there any other factors that you think exist?
0: Yeah, I think that one's actually huge. I think it's one of the big ones. Um, but I do I do think that a huge issue is exposure. Um, and I think that, you know, when you're in academia, it's this kind of almost like magical place that you exist in. And it's like a bit of a bubble. And most of the people on the tower? Yeah. Most of the people that you're exposed to on a daily basis are, you know, probably spent their whole life in academia. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it just, when you're... When you're looking for something different, you're not always exposed to different, right? You're, you know, you tend to be quite insular. You're often focused kind of even within the lab and sometimes, you know, within your department or your institute. So it can be hard to kind of forge those new connections. And I know that uh, the university here was doing a lot of work to try and expose students to, you know, what are your transferable skills and how do they transfer outside of academia? um and then they held there was a lot of events you know there was a lot of speakers coming in i don't know if it was just me but i just never really connected to those events or those speakers and i often just prioritized you know my experiments over attending these networking events or various things because i didn't really see the value at the time i was so headset on going into like staying in academia i was like why do i need to know about other careers or other things that might happen and on a daily basis my you know my coffee chat or people I were talking to had never had really any exposure to the business world or any other world outside of, um, kind of the academic bubble, or I think I would say academic or medicine, because those were two quite like intertwined. Mm -hmm.
1: So, I mean, you've talked a little bit about all the forces that push and pull, uh, towards and away from academia, from a PhD student standpoint, um, so, I mean, how does it feel to be on the other side, or perhaps you could say the dark side now? <laughs>
0: yeah, it feels it feels really good. Um, you know, there's days where I miss research. I don't think I'll ever yeah. lose my love or connection to it. Um, but now I just really like to appreciate other people's research and what they're achieving in the lab. Um, I think now I, I get to use those skills that I've I've built over the last, you know, however many years. During my academic tenure and, and apply them in a completely different way, which is really exciting. Um, and at the same time, it's it's funny because I still don't feel like I'm fully gone from academia. You know, the first year after I left, I still had um, a research paper that wasn't published, so I was going up in the evenings and doing some experiments and helping out. Um, and that only got published six months ago, so I don't feel like I've been gone for that long, even though I've been physically gone for over two years for about two years um but i do i do think in in contrast to academia you know the innovation sector it just moves very quickly and speed is of the essence and i really like that pace things are always moving they're always evolving and you know no two days in business are ever the same so i really do like that
1: mhm mhm so it seems like there's a pretty drastic change i guess you had mentioned a little bit about the skill sets that it, that that are transferable um and i guess one of one of Uh, the articles that I came upon when I was doing some research prior to this um, interview was uh, one written by Nathan Benick. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically he tells about a PhD's journey from oncology uh, into VC and he mentioned some transferable skills. Can you guess which ones he mentions?
0: Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I guess data. Data is always, I think, one that's extremely transferable. You know, as a scientist, you're always analyzing right you have to look at the data that's at hand you have to analyze and make the best conclusions out of it that you possibly can um, and justify them and, and I think in business there's a lot of data every day we're looking at you know uh, the data within the companies that we're working with and I see our capital team they're always like analyzing the market data and looking at company data you know investments that they've made previously so I think PhDs are generally speaking they're very analytical they're they have a, a really good ability to, to kind of pair things to the base data building blocks, and and see how that kind of comes together to make the best decisions would so, be one. And then, potentially, problem solving um, is one that I think about a lot. I think, you know, as a PhD, you can, as a researcher, even you know, you're you're basically ingesting information, um, the the information that you have at hand. You're coming up with hypotheses, and you're testing it and adjusting it. Like I said, I do genuinely view business as a big experiment. Uh, so there's always, you know, as a researcher or in business, you always need to have the ability to take in new information as it comes, identify assumptions, work to validate the assumptions, and continually pivot. But I'm not sure. If Two or three.
1: Good. Two or three. Two or three. Not bad. Oh. Not bad. The thing that he adds is uh, domain expertise. Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, from his perspective, working on oncology, of course, there's plenty of applicability. Um, but certainly having some background in terms of like working in, you know, biomedical device manufacturing certainly lends a different aspect, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's plenty of applicable skills, but the ones that you mentioned are the more generally applicable ones, lest you get hemmed into one specific, like really small, tiny sub-segment of the VC field overall. Um, s- sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, I-, I totally agree. I I just think that there is, yeah. The other, one, the only other one I would think of is, is like project management. I think that you know, if you if you can project manage as a researcher, it's very hard to like plan experiments. There's no one else planning experiments, kind of holding your hand. You're quite independent as a researcher, and I think that actually transfers really well into any any role that you ever do. I think scientists make strong project managers.
1: Okay, so you're going for the bonus point. I see how it is. I, mean,
0: I am throwing it out there
1: try hard as always. Um, so another conversation that I, I looked at online was uh, one with uh, Dr. Jonathan Tobin, uh, who uh, is a PhD and is now the investment director of Eric's Bioscience. Um, so he mentions that there's immense pressure. Um, and I guess this perspective of always being on call uh, in VC, and that it's balanced out by the experiences um, that you have as a VC in working with like, really amazing, intelligent, entrepreneurial people and supporting new ventures. Um, I know that you don't work directly in VC, rather you work in providing the services that support VC, but there's some cross applicability with your experience here. What do you think of this assessment? Is it accurate or is it just drumming up, like hype around the field so that more people come to the field?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I, you're right as all well, you know, venture Labs is, a, is an interesting structure. You know, we are one part venture capital firm. But then we do have our, our startup services, which is where I work. So we're you know, we're working in parallel and working directly with uh with our VC firm, but we uh we work a lot with we actually work with a lot of startups uh, all the time. So How for many? me working right now, just on my service line, we probably have about about thirty five uh, clients we're working with right now. We've worked with a over eighty over the last eighteen months. Um so it's it's crazy. Um, but it's amazing. Like I love project working. management. Uh, right? Exactly. I love working with startups. You know, you see all the incredible founders, their innovations this is the best part of the job. I think I look at founders and I their job is twenty four seven. You know, they they never stop. Um and these founders are changing the world and the impact that they're creating is amazing. So if they're working twenty four seven, you kinda need to be available for them, not quite twenty four seven, but typically outside of uh, normal working hours. So it's worth it to me when you get to be a part of any of the victories, whether it's, you know, they get a big client, they launch a product to market, they get Health Canada approval, and they close a financing round. It's just so worth it. You get like a tiny part of that journey and you can be there with them. Um, It's infectious, like their energy and that. It's just, it's amazing. So I just don't understand how anyone wouldn't want to be a part of that.
1: It seems like a big draw, apart from being able to apply your skills in a different, more fast-paced context, really is the relationships that you form in VC and the, I guess, um, vicarious victories that you get to experience. Um, I guess, is, is, is that like a fair assessment overall? Or I guess, is there anything else that draws you, um, I guess, that these relationships do to draw you towards the field?
0: No, I think that's a really good assessment. I'm I'm always curious, right? Like I love meeting people. I love hearing their stories. Like it always fascinates me how a founder will be, you know, working in nine to five job and suddenly they have an idea and now they're, you know, the next big med tech innovator or they're making a real estate tech company or whatever it might be. And, I, and I've surprised myself because we're sector agnostic, right? So we work across all the, the different sectors. And I was like, oh, I'm only going to love the life sciences ones or the health ones. And I find myself getting really excited about a contractor, procurement, and like real estate tech because they're just, they're solving problems. And the innovations that people come up with to solve these complex problems or sometimes these simple problems, it just, it blows my mind. And I I constantly walk out of a room just being like, that one's my favorite. And then it's the next day I'm like, oh no, I have a new favorite. So I love that. You know, having a job where you're able to do that every day is incredible.
1: Talking about short attention spans, how would you uh, describe VC to a five-year-old? Just using monosyllabic and bisyllabic words only.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. It's funny because I actually, you know, I have to explain this to the kids in my life semi-regularly. The way I think about it with them is um, VC, it's, it's a way for new businesses to get money so they can become big businesses. And the example I use, because they're familiar with it, is we all know that Apple is a really big company, makes iPhones and computers. But many years ago, they were just starting out. They needed some money so they could build their phones with all the cool features that everyone loves. And they're really innovative. And they, needed mo- they got money from VCs to make that happen. And when a VC gives you money, they become your partner. And they support you and they help you along the way.
1: So maybe a pushback that a five-year-old might ask is, don't they make money from sales of the phones? Why couldn't they just do that?
0: <laughs> I don't know what five year olds you talk to, but I don't know. Yep, that far. <laughs> well yeah, it's you know it's you know, you have to tell them about you know, I often use examples of when you build a house, it's you know, it's so expensive when you go to the store, all the things you need to buy all at once. So you kind of have to, to break it down into components of what can you do first? What can you afford? And just helping them understand how much things truly cost and you know, if you were one person building a house by yourself, think of how long it would take you to build it. If you had a, you know, suddenly you were able to expand your team to 10 people because you had the money to look how fast you'd be able to build it and maybe you'd be able to build it a lot better because you'd be bringing in other skill sets.
1: Yeah. I mean, the word component was trisyllabic, but I'll let, I'll, I'll, I'll let, I'll let a slide. I'll let a
0: slide. I, 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 I even heard it when I said it and I was like, God oh, dang it. Wish could." Um.
1: So, I mean, you must have Encountered a lot of uh, VC success stories um, along the way, as well as uh, some companies that didn't necessarily make the cut. But for you yourself, what was the greatest failure that you personally have overcome while on the journey to providing services in the VC world? I know that you've had to learn to apply your skills. So perhaps there's something uh, provides I guess use the skills that you developed in research to apply them to a VC context, but I guess, overall, were there any points where you kind of stumbled and didn't know what you were doing? And how did that change your entire experience?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I've been pretty lucky on this journey. When I when I started with Nair Labs on the service side, we were just establishing. So we were really early. So we didn't even know what we didn't know yet. You know, and we're working with startups, but our, we were ourselves were also a startup. So that was a very interesting journey. Um and and I spoke about this a little bit when I was talking about the bio-innovation clusters I did and the intimidation to the, the languages. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges I had when I kind of dove into thin air. I was intimidated by the language. I was intimidated by business concepts that I'd never even come across before. You know, I never had to look at cash flow statements and profit and loss and like look at the books and do budgeting and things like that. And that was, that was really new for me. And I've absolutely loved learning everything that I've learned and and I continue to learn every day. Like I I joke about this all the time and I'm like every day, I think I get a grip on something, something new pops up and I I learn something new all over again, which I absolutely love. But I think some of the biggest challenges we have day to day is, you know, we just want to help founders. We want to help them win. We want to help them grow. We want to do what we can and realizing that you can't be all things to all people is is one of the hardest things so like refining who we can work best with who we can create the biggest successes with um and really honing in on that and you know there are a lot of other services out there for for um entrepreneurs especially in the early stages in calgary and in alberta there's a thriving ecosystem here so i think um, leaning on the ecosystem and and you know finding our own niche was probably one of our biggest challenges which we've overcome now which is amazing and some of the biggest successes we've had—it's been incredible. Like one company, a medical device company here in Alberta, called True Angle. We were able to help them, you know, with grants that they uh, needed support on, and bring in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's going to support uh, their next stage of growth and help them, you know, bridge their next financing round. You're you're kind of you're playing for real stakes here. You know, these are real impacts that these companies are making, and you're just helping them get to the next stage. And that for me is it's so important. And it's something that I guess it keeps me up at night because I want to make sure that we do a, a really good job and, and not have failures. And we've been we've been lucky so far.
1: That's fair enough. I guess my my other question would be you said that when you joined Thin Air, it was kind of a startup helping startups. Why why go with Thin Air Labs? What made it so special as someone who was, you know, looking for a job? Outside of medicine with industry uh, sorry research with industry um I mean there must have been something that drew you to the firm in particular
0: yeah it is it's a very special place i uh I was very drawn to it and there's a couple of things I liked the structure of what they were setting up actually I really liked that they had the venture capital arm you know they've had people with a lot of experience in you know starting companies uh James lockraiser um you know our capital partner and he he had huge success with wave financial but i also liked that they recognized that you know founders need more than just a check you know they need the the services and the support like a warm blanket and that's what the the services the original kind of idea with them was we have both you know the funding catalyst where i work and and the product traction um service and that was the idea that that they would help portfolio companies and then we realized you know there's actually a lot more Uh, pull from the market there's a lot more companies that need the services that we're putting out there and that was really exciting but from thin air as a whole it was the people you know everyone in thin air loves founders we all want to see them win we're all grateful to be here we're motivated by their founder journey and we have immense empathy um for the founders and and truly just want to help them give their gift to the world whatever that is and the impact you know a lot of you hear a lot of bad things about vc firms and the same way you do about you know pharmaceutical industry there's a lot of bad press about uh, vcs because you know they're chasing the next dollar and they're only in for in it for the money whereas what i love about thin air is the focus on impact and creating real human impact and obviously we want to get the investment return as well as creating the human impact but we don't think those things are mutually exclusive we think you can do both and in fact you know we think that one feeds the other and that's a it's a very compelling narrative and it's you know, it's something that really drew me in. And then what, what's kept me here is that it's true. And that's the mm-hmm. way everyone operates on a, on a daily basis in here.
1: That's a very, like, empathetic perspective on VC. You're absolutely right. And what's really interesting is I remember, so I, I uh, interviewed your colleague, uh, Crystal, uh, just recently. And she had mentioned that empathy is also something that she looks for uh, in her interactions uh, in the VC world. So how important is empathy in VC or is it something that's just nice to have?
0: Yeah, for us, it's huge because, you know, we're betting on founders and I know that the capital team, you know, they truly value the founders that they're interacting with and and we see it on the services side too. Um, And it's hugely important to be empathetic towards them. Founders are the center of all of our stories. They're the ones with the amazing innovation. They're the ones that are, you know, working 24-7 and pushing this forward. And and a lot of the folks in the like that are working here have started companies, have been in the founder seat before, have raised capital, have gone through this journey before, and know what it's like. So they want to be able to share their successes and what worked for them, what didn't work. The failures are you know just as important, if more important than the, the successes at times. So I think having that that immense founder empathy. Nobody knows a business better than a founder. And no one's going to you know drive the business forward except the founder. So for us, the, the empathy is, is a huge component of what we do. And I think it's, I actually think it's really crucial. You know, we look at when we invest in a company or when we're working with companies, we look at it as a partnership. We want to be there with them. We want to, like I said, live those successes and, you know, take those failures and, and you know, learn from them um, every day. So I think that empathy is, is really crucial.
1: Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that empathy takes the form of kind of like a guiding uh, partnership that you know, uh, the, the essentially thin air um, I guess, it is part of and uses to follow along the journey uh, with the companies at hand so that they're well supported and so that the needs that the companies have are perhaps better stated and better met.
0: Yeah, exactly. We don't want to tell them how to run their businesses, right? We just want to support them and um, give them the resources or help them in whatever way we can uh, for them to succeed and get to the next stage. We just we just mm-hmm. want to see these founders win. We want to see, you know, primarily or at least initially, we want to see Alberta win. You know, there's a lot of talent, there's a lot of innovation here. I'm sorry,
1: British really, Columbia for the win.
0: Nope. And we're really excited about what's we're really excited about what happened what's happening in Alberta. You know, it doesn't you don't hear about it a lot. You're hearing about it a lot more lately. And uh I think Calgary can be the next big thing.
1: I'll I'll I'll, I'll resolve to differ on that. That's right. Really um but I guess you've seen a lot of like medtech and biotech come through, or I guess you I, I'm assuming that you have come through your offices and meetings. Um, what's the, I guess, biggest trend that you've seen among these startups that you're most excited about?
0: Yeah, we certainly have worked with quite a number of medtech and biotech companies. Mm. There's a couple I'm really excited about, actually. You know, pre- precision medicine is obviously huge right now. Um, and it's kind of the future of medicine. Everyone's talking about us. Um, but for me specifically in there, I'm really excited about screening tools. Like I just think it's been a space that it's it's needed innovation. It has been innovating, but it, it just seems like it's kind of exploding lately. It's amazing to see how the advancements in different imaging or different types of tests could really kind of revolutionize this, this field. One of our portfolio companies, Cyantra, um, I've been working with for a while as well. And I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but they've developed a blood test for the detection of cancer, and it's really effective. And their first product is in the detection of breast cancer. So from a simple, um, a simple blood test, you know, it's with over ninety percent accuracy, able to detect the presence, kind of a yes/no of where um, whether breast cancer is is present. And this is going to be huge, you know that. Traditional approaches to breast cancer detection, like mammography and things like that, they have limitations, um, and this this could be really revolutionary. I'm so excited to see where this this company goes. And then the other one is the medical device space. The medical devices are are really blowing up right now, and I think uh, especially with all the the uh, advances in tech, not just from the hardware perspective, from software perspective, you know, remote monitoring how that field is all, you know, especially driven, I think, even faster by COVID. Um, I think that that space is, is just ripe with innovation. And we see a lot of innovation in that space. And I think it's really interesting to see now as well that companies, you see products that you wouldn't immediately think that they're a medical device, but they're being classified as so because of the way the technology is advancing or the composition of what's in it. A good example of this is a, a company we've worked with, or sorry, a portfolio company, uh, nano test, they developed a salve, uh, to promote the healing of chronic wounds, but it's the composition is actually nanotechnology. Um, I'm not actually sure 100% what they, they are, but you wouldn't typically think of a salve being a medical device, but because of the nanotechnology components or the composition of this, it, it's classified and they got Health Canada approval as a medical device to promote wound healing. It's incredible. You think of all the, uh, medic or chronic wounds in the world and, the impact that this company could have, it's its amazing. I'm excited.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a whole plethora of different trends from screening to treatment that you're interested in. I guess, I, I mean, maybe a good question to, to, to ask to kind of close off this little segment is, um, what specific services like are you most proud of in developing within air? Because when you mentioned medical device my immediate thought was regulation and look regulation is super important when it comes to making sure that devices are safe to use i don't want a sell that burns off my face personally yeah. i don't know about you um but i i think that like there's as a result of these strict controls like there's a whole burden on companies to be able to you know go through all these regulatory hurdles to get to market but that burden itself also restricts some companies that may not have the funding or expertise necessary to jump through the hurdles so like do you do much in the in the way of you know regulatory support within air is that something that you're hoping to do or what's your perspective on that
0: yeah, right now we're not in the regulatory space. It it could be something we'd look at in the future. It's definitely something I'm very interested in for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. It's such a it's such it can be such a hurdle um to get past it. And and you know, that space is so um controlled and and rightfully so. Um, but it, it can definitely be it can definitely challenge innovation. I think on funding catalyst, what we do that can help in that respect is, you know, we're all about funding. Um, so what we do is we focus on non-dilutive funding. So are there sources of grant funding? Is there, you know, debt funding that you could go after? Are there rewards or competitions that come with a prize pot? And just helping um, founders really maximize the finance that they have in the business. So even if they raise some capital, how can you extend that runway by leveraging various forms of grants? And then when you talk about the regulatory path, there are grants and there are projects that you can do and get grant support for that support your, um, your path to Health Canada or FDA or CE mark um, and getting all those approvals, you know, it's it's, sometimes it's funding for a clinical validation study because you need to increase the, the number of patients that you've worked with in order to get, you know, enough proof to go to and do your first submissions. So there's a lot of support like that, that we help founders with. and, And that's, you know, that impact of that grant funding, it doesn't You know, when you say, oh, it's a $100,000 grant, it sounds great. But if it's a $100,000 grant to support clinical validation study, that's the last piece of the puzzle to get to, you know, Health Canada approvals. The impact of that is huge. And I think that's why, you know, everyone on my team, particularly, not just in the health or med space, it's why we show up every day. These are the kind of the impacts and the wins that we're trying to create for the founders that we're working with
1: and their teams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to wrap this all up, um, If you were to be able to go all back to the future on yourself and jump back in time to talk to young Katie for 15 seconds, what advice would you give yourself?
0: Yeah, well, you sent me this question earlier and I had a good think about it. And what I came up with was just believe in yourself. I know it's it's cheesy, but the, I think there's so much imposter syndrome within academia and it, it really breeds it. Um, I certainly carried mine into the business world and it took me some time to believe in myself the value that I bring to the table even in this you know new um, kind of in this new place that I'm in in this new world of business I didn't understand how the value that I had and and having that belief when I came here and it was really the team Thin Air that has really helped me you know unlock that potential and working with all these incredible founders that we do I think that would be the biggest advice I would give and I would give it to any scientist I think just believe in the work that you're doing and the skills that you're building and and value those
1: mm-hmm. and i guess the last question would be is there anything particular anything in particular that you're proud of that you're working on right now that you want to share with the listeners before we sign off
0: i think i'm i'm just proud of everything we're working on to be honest i know this again it's kind of a non-answer answer but like like i said we're working with over 35 companies and i I just value the impact of every single one of them. I'm not going to sit here and give you each and every project that we're working on, but it, it's not? been... Uh, no, I could, but it'll be a long podcast. <laughs> but being able to help the founders grow or hire someone really exceptional to their team. And, you know, we also have our product traction team and they, they help companies, uh, you know, build product or validate their products and be able to work side by side with those folks as well and just to double the impact because sometimes it's, you know, we can point out funding that might be able to support a project and use our product team. And it's, you know, double the impact then where you're you kind of subsidizing the cost um, of them being able to create or do exceptional work with our product teams and, and the way we can, you know, marry all the skill sets we have in the team to try and you know, create the best outcomes.
1: All right. Uh, and I guess listeners, thanks for listening to this podcast uh, with Dr. Katie Green. Uh, my name is Jeff. This is How It's Med. And you can find our podcast at howitsmed.com or any of your podcatchers that you listen to this podcast to. Till next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time. Bye-bye.